You are listening to the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach's Curto Conversations podcast. In each episode, campus and community experts will highlight collaborations that contribute to the advancement of the human community. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnik rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin, Sovereign, Anishi, Nave, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Anita, and Mohican nations remain present. And welcome to another episode of Kodo Conversations. My name is Benjamin Lindsay. I am the senior researcher for the Center for Urban Research Teaching and Outreach, and I'll be your host today. And today I'm joined by Center Director Dr. Robert Smith and Associate Professor of Political Science, Dr. Julia Asari. How are the two of you doing this morning? Very good. Very good, Ben. Yeah, good. Happy to be here. I'm, I'm very glad that you've decided to join us. I know that I gave a very brief um, intro to the two of you, but if you both would like to give us more information, that would be great for our listeners. Dr. Zari, why don't you start? We, we're really thrilled to have you on the, the podcast, so we, we'd like to hear a little bit about your expertise. Can you share a little bit about all of what you do? Yeah, thank you. So here at Marquette, I'm the, the person who teaches the American presidency. I teach now several classes on that. I've just wrapped up teaching a class called The President in History. I teach classes on American elections and political parties, and I'm working on research on the the politics within parties in in both of the two major political parties in the United States. And I'm also working on a project on the connection between race and presidential impeachment. It's really interesting. It's good stuff. And you know, Ben, I obviously as the Harry G. John Professor, Director of Curdo, I'm Associate Professor in History, like to look at the intersections of race and law, like to look at the ways that protest communities use the law to effectuate social change, the impact of the law on the sort of longstanding presence of racial patterns and practices and discrimination. Currently, I'm working on a project that looks at the relationship between Black lawyers from South Africa and their partnerships with civil and human rights lawyers here in the US. And so it's a examination of the human rights bar in the fight against apartheid and the ways that they collaborate and uh, figure out ways to challenge that system uh, through the courts. Well, thank you both for that introduction. And it's a pleasure to have such scholars as the two of you with me today. And what we're gonna talk about is the events of January 6, 2021 the Capitol riot, as it's sometimes called, or the, um, as I prefer to think of it, the insurrection during the certification of the Electoral College. And the reason that we at Curto wanted to talk about this is that this is, um, in some ways, a bellwether moment and a culmination of the last few years of the political divide and animus in the country. And there's also the fact that despite the fact that I think the last number I saw was that there have been 441 people arrested uh, for their participation in the insurrection, there has not been a whole lot of political fallout. And so we just wanted to get together and discuss this, this important event. Yeah, you know, it's, it's still really sort of surreal 
in a lot of ways, you know, and I'm glad that we took some time to think about what occurred and, and didn't jump right into this conversation. And here we are several months later, and you mentioned the arrest, Ben, but it, it still seems as though there's something in very incomplete about dealing with that situation, dealing with an insurrection. It, uh, you know, folks kicked in the doors of our house of government and there, there, it seemed to uh, kind of move along with the rest of our news cycle. And it didn't seem to be addressed as as big of a deal as it certainly seems like it is and, and, and continues to be. The question that I've always struggled with, with the moment we're in, you know, and thinking about historical patterns or historical echoes, if you will, just, you don't know where we are in the cycle. We don't know if the insurrection was the beginning of something, the middle of something or the ending of something, you know? And so it's, it, we have still so many more questions, but uh, Dr. Zari, I'd love to hear your thoughts, certainly. Yeah, this is, this is a great question. And I know I sort of feel the same way that this, the day of kind of had this, for people who really watch politics, had this sort of 9-11-ish feeling to it of just this sort of civic violation. And the Capitol in particular is like a sort of civically sacred space for a lot of different, a lot of different people. I also think it's notable that the United States Congress has become, it's still not representative of the United States, but has become a lot more so in the last couple of election cycles. So you know, you have a, a woman as the Speaker of the House, you have a number of notable representatives of color. And so I think the House, the House of Representatives in particular has really become a symbol of that. And, you know, and just like on a personal note, I mean, I'm friends with a number of DC reporters, I knew people who were in the building at the time, and you just didn't know how things, I, I felt like I didn't know how things were going to turn out, particularly when it, you know, the Department of Defense didn't seem to be too on top of, of getting there. And so it's really a scary couple of hours. Yeah. And coming out of that, you do have this question about, well, what can be the what can be the political accountability or the political response? And the next morning I wrote a piece on the blog that I write for, the Mistress of Faction, that where I kind of talked about the split screen reality of the Trump years, which now feels like a long time ago, but of course Trump was was obviously still in office that day. I started with my observation from the day of, because I was watching the speeches on the Senate floor. I was watching a feed that was showing that as they were certifying the electoral college vote, and I was messaging back and forth with a friend, and he was like, they're still speaking on the Senate floor? Do they not know there's protesters literally outside banging on the doors? And it was this split screen moment of this sort of four alarm fire for democracy at the same time things are sort of proceeding in normal fashion that I think really characterized the Trump years. And it was sort of like norms, norms, norms was the framework. That I think is a really, is kind of a, proved to be a very limited framework for opponents of the kind of Trumpism project in, you know, in both parties and no parties all across the political spectrum the idea of preserving norms proved to be sort of inadequate. And I didn't predict that the Congress would go forward with the impeachment. So I was actually somewhat surprised about that. But that's my that's my sort of read on it as, as a political scientist. You know, and if I were to say a little bit more historically, it felt like a resurgent Confederacy moment. You know, it felt very Reconstruction era, 
mm-hmm. post-emancipation. Uh, it just, again, it, it uh, not to suggest that history goes in any sort of cycles, but there's certainly these these echoing fabrics of it all. And it just, it, you know, you have a, you have the gallows and the hangman's noose out there. You know, you you can see the crowd as I'm, uh, and I'm I'm gonna continue with the split screen experience, right? So I'm I'm looking at multiple things. I'm sitting there doing some work. I'm I'm looking at what's happening, and I'm thinking to myself, this crowd is being whipped into a frenzy, not unlike a lynch mob. It's not that something was planned necessarily to happen at a particular time, it's, it's the, the, you know, the crowd sitting around the, the, the speeches, you know, all of that kind of whips the crowd into uh, a frenzy. And then any interaction can tip it, it can be police officer, it could be anything. And so as the, as the crowd tips, you know, you start to think, oh my goodness, anything can happen at that point. It becomes, and as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Zari, there's no, immediate response. It doesn't seem like the, the, that our, the protections that ought to have been there were, were not there. And, and so it was a very, very frightening moment. But because I'm watching it on television, it also didn't necessarily feel real. There, there's, there, was, a, there was a new cycle component to it, you know, and, and, and not to say that it didn't feel real. There was something about watching it on television that made it all the more absurd, odd, I'm not sure what the right word is. Right. I mean, there was a certain level of, of absurdity to the whole thing, that sort of QAnon vibe. That right. Did, exactly. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You, I I bookended my course on the president in history with this incident, actually. We sort of, we started with it. When classes started on January 25th, I made my students watch on the first day of the semester the 12-minute video that the New Yorker released, which at the time was was some of the most extensive footage and it does have a ridiculous vibe the the guy in the viking hat and you know it feels like a frat party gone awry and then but then you know they're in you know as you said the the people's chamber and again i knew people who were reporters who were in that chamber who were evacuated and one of the last tweets i saw from one of them was that someone had started shooting shooting in the house chamber You know, this it could have been much, much worse. This just I am just struck by how much worse it could have been. Right. But yeah, so we kind of bookended the semester. We ended with the 2020 election and we talked about whether the not just insurrection, but the sort of election discourse that led up to it was racialized and like how that how that relates to the presidency. And I think it all comes back to a couple of facts about the, the way the presidency works. One, so one has to do with the, the fallout from the election, which is that we've, I mean, we've had, you know, messed up elections. 2020 wasn't one of them. By all accounts, it was one of our better elections. But we've had elections where the result was unclear and was contested. And one of the critical things about that is that the sitting president does not have a role in that process. And as there are many flaws with having it be mostly done through the states, but the decentralization does also serve a purpose. And for the sitting president to to be involved in that way was really historically, you know, felt very unprecedented and very scary to me. And then you saw that kind of reemerge on January 6th, not just with the way that Trump used the rhetorical power of the presidency to as as you said, kind of whip up 
the crowd, but also the way in which you really started to see how, particularly in the capital, because of its special, unique status, that the sort of federalization of the protection of the capital, all of that essentially runs through the executive branch. And you really start to see how, on the one hand, Trumpism is this distinct social phenomenon and way of approaching politics that draws on the reconstruction. I think it draws really heavily on some of the nativist politics of the 1920s, all of these strands of American history. And it's obviously really manifest even as Trump is sort of, you know, banned from Twitter and forced to do open mic night at Mar-a-Lago to get his message out. On the other hand, it really matters who's in the presidency and the power of the executive branch. Like we kind of don't think about it, but it's, it's really important. And it's really important that that office be sort of infused at every level with respect for, for institutions and democracy and rule of law. Absolutely. And, you know, oh man, there, there's so many, this is great. There's so many threads and I, I, I don't, let's see if we can pull on some more, some of those threads. <laughs> I think one thread is, is race. So let's, let's see if we can come back to that. Uh, the, I think uh, uh, another thread is whether or not how planned this January 6th was. Did Trump put things in place, which I remember, uh, I'll come back to that. So I was finishing up a, a reader, a history, a introductory uh, textbook for uh, introductory history classes. And I finished it in November and I said, well, you know, this election was historic, vice president, I wrote, and it didn't, and we still weren't sure whether or not the Republic would hold. And that was, you know, obviously before January 6th. So the press came back and said, okay, now give us two more sentences. <laughs> <laughs> and so much of what we learned on January 6th and throughout the Trump presidency is this only works to the extent that we believe in the systems, right? And, and if we're not, as a, as a whole body politic, buying into the systems, insurrection becomes quite possible. It was very clearly a president of the United States. Well, we, the person we used to say was the known leader of the world, right? The, the leader of the known world damaged these institutions and fomented an environment where such an insurrection could indeed occur. And so I just wanted to echo those, those thoughts as well. Good doctor. But then the question of race is just sitting on top of all of it, right? Everything from the racial makeup of the insurrection, of the folks who are, taking, who are taking part of the insurrection, the the rhetoric that has been a part of the Trump administration, the racial violence that has been uh, on a, on an increase, uh, state violence on the part of the police. We can't ignore the importance of 2020's uh, protest moment. You know, all of that goes into the, the racial, racializing, the racial makeup of what happened on January 6th. And of course, the brazen audacity for uh, overwhelmingly white crowd to think that it was okay to kick in the doors of our government. That is in, in so many ways a, a reflection of what we refer to as white supremacy in this most academic sense. It, it, it's just such a reflection of that. And so the Oh man, there's so many threads, good doctor. Thank you for, for <laughs> adding that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I was really, really struck by that on the sixth. And I think I tweeted, I don't know, I tweeted probably more than I should have that day, um, which is any amount of tweeting, but 
I mean, I think I tweeted about that and just that I, I couldn't imagine what would have happened if that had been a, a primarily crowd, I mean, specifically primarily black crowd, right? How that, it, that was, that was astounding to me. Again, as we got more information and we watched more videos, the sort of sense of entitlement that people have, and I think this really speaks to the the core of the issue, as I see it, in terms of thinking about race and the state, which is to think about who things, who these institutions belong to. And in some ways, January 6 gives us like these really concrete, like it's almost like if you were reading a novel, you'd be like, this is too literal, right? The way in which, as you're watching those, the people that they have on, on tape, who are, they're mostly white men, talking about the entitlement that they feel to that property, to those things, to, you know, to, to the, the property of the senators as they're going through their desks. And alternately, if people kind of watching and saying, no, that is the, the people's house, that is public property. And the sort of question we have about, well, then who, you know, who does that actually belong to? And for some people, it's a question of, it belongs to everybody. It, it belongs to a, a diverse and complicated nation, which means none of us have any real, you know, domain over it. And other people who see it as, you know, they're taking back their rightful ownership of power. Yes. And I think we're like, we talk about politics right now being polarized. And I think on some level, it's a contestation between those two visions about who the state is for. Yeah. And, it, and it's further muddled and made all the more ridiculous in some ways, those claims, when there's an absolute disrespect for the very institutions, the rule of law, the, the rule of politics from that very same community of folks who then are saying and claiming those spaces. It's, it's, uh, an interesting and very scary convergence of opposing ideas. Right. I would like to interject here for a moment because some of the stuff that you've said has resonated with me because of my own watching of the, the event. And I will, I remember, and I don't remember exactly the timeline of when I saw this video, but it was one of the protesters speaking to an officer at the Capitol. And he was repeating to him, we have your back. You're supposed to have ours. I say we're being pushed out of of the Capitol. And that really resonated, especially in light of the recent report that has come out done of the Capitol Police saying that they were instructed not to use their most effective, air quotes there, so most violent crowd control methods, despite the fact that they had been warned that these there was a high likelihood of violence from the Trump extremists that were coming to the Capitol. And that was, if you observed the, the nation in the months leading up to that with the these march on the Capitol building in Michigan or the plot to kidnap the Michigan governor that was foiled or the hanging in effigy of Governor Andy Bashir in Kentucky at the Capitol during anti-lockdown protests there. This was seemed to have been coming for a long time, but because of the, the racial nature, the fact that these were mainly white protesters, there seemed to be less investment from authorities in attempting to deal with it in any concrete manner. You know, Ben, it is almost impossible for me to teach, discuss, research, write about the Black experience and not collide directly with this question of, of either one, racial violence on the part of white Americans or state violence, which is overwhelmingly perpetrated by white Americans as well, and the confluence of the two, you know, both 
vigilante violence in some ways that's either uh, not curtailed be, by law enforcement or in this case, law enforcement being complicit or directly involved. And now we, we folks can be surprised, but for well over a decade, if not longer, some very reputable scholars and think tanks have been telling us that law enforcement had turned into a refuge for white nationalists, specifically because of the, the way that policing urban communities, black and brown communities allowed for the inflicting of very serious violence and harm on, on those uh, populations and on those communities. And so the connections between broader expressions of white violence, racial violence, and then its relationship or connections to state violence, particularly the infusion of policing in, in whatever capacities should not surprise anybody at this point. You know? we, we can't tell the black experience without white violence in particular and racial violence on the part of the state. You know? and, the, and the two are married in so many ways. Yeah, this is a so this was a piece of this new course that I taught on the president in history that actually really jumped out at me. And this is, I mean, this is a little bit, I don't know what your experience is, is like um, in the classroom, Dr. Smith, I would be curious to hear. But for me, it's a very, you know, it's an interesting thing because the study of the American presidency has only recently been really brought together with with race and kind of mainstream American political institutions has not been very informed by studying race and political science, like race and ethnic politics has kind of been its own field over there. And we're catching up. And I introduced race into my presidency course in 2015. And the students really liked it, which I was, I was sort of surprised by. And I wanted to teach this in a way, you know, history gives us a good lens for us to talk about the same themes with sort of different people that my students don't feel attached to. Some of them right, like right. only heard of that president that day. Right. So, <laughs> um, so that's great, right? That's, you know, that's fine. We're not born knowing things. But I was actually surprised, you know, when sometimes you put your own material together and then you teach it and then you like something jumps out of you that you've never yes. imagined yeah. or seen before. Yeah. And so I taught about, a chapter about the sort of anti-lynching lobbying efforts in the 1920s when the NAACP started, mm -hmm. in the 1910s and 1920s when NAACP started yeah. lobbying in the White House. Yeah. And then we brought that thread up through the reaction of Brown v. Board and Eisenhower and then mm -hmm. Lyndon Johnson and the reaction to civil rights. And we talked about a little bit about Watts. I showed them some videos that are actually footage from the 60s of like news reports about Watts. And the, the unrest there, we did not talk about the terminology of like what we call all that, but right, right. Just, we just looked at kind of what presidents did and how they reacted to society and how society reacted to them. But if you, if you, if those are your three days in class, this is an incredibly violent story of America as a country. This right. is like, I think feels really conflicted with the students who, and this is not all of our students, but many of them grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, like in very, you know, very geographically separated from a lot of that, which was not an accident. It, it tells a story of a country that really has a violent history. And it tells, and I think it brings that violence right up to people. And it links it both with the, the big political institutions, which is what we talk about in my class, but also with thinking about people's experiences. I think that it gives a lens to talk about some of this stuff. I mean, that's what I try to do in the classroom and to take it out of whatever emotions people may be feeling about what's happening that day. 
Um, but it also, I think, shows this continuity and shows that violence is just not exceptional. Right, right. But, you know, and it's very interesting and disturbing when we see the uptick in violence, racial violence, particularly during moments of racial reform. You know, that, that also exposes some of the key threads to the problems we have with race in the United States. And if we, if we put that, that question of uh, reform or, or movements toward racial progress in any kind of immediate ways, obviously the election of a black president is, is connected to all of that. We know the importance of Barack Obama's presidencies to what happened on January 6th. You know, that, that's, the, the lines can be drawn almost directly in terms of folks making comments about taking the country back or uh, making sure the country or making America great again. You know, all of that is, is very much, uh, we, can, we can come back to uh, the, the seeming threat of black and brown political power. And, and we know that there are historical moments where when black political power in particular seems to uh, threaten white dominance, violence, is, is very much a part of the recipe and, and not the only recipe, but certainly part of it. And that violence can be directed at, at folks who are not black too. Uh, the crowd on the six was talking about hanging pence, which, you know, that, that, that was at the very least surprising, but, but maybe not, uh, you know, so uh, our, our, our white allies, uh, Republicans during reconstruction were met with extreme violence, you know, and so uh, we see it the civil rights workers, during the 1960s, 50s and 60s, yeah, same kinds of expressions directed at, at those folks for being a part of an, an effort to combat racism and race discrimination. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the things that with the presidency, so this is the book that I should be working on later today instead of tweeting, is um, the this connection, sorry, I know this is not funny, but I feel like I need to add. Um, you know, sometimes we gotta lighten it up a little bit. You know what I mean? We, we are talking yeah. about the destabilized Republic and murder and mayhem and everything else, so. Right, right, exactly. And this is, so I guess for me, one of the things I, I kind of want to think about is like ways in which Trump is different and ways in which Trump is part of a pattern. And what I observe it, again, I'm you know a scholar of the presidency, so I'm not as well versed in the history of policing or some of the things that are happening more on a kind of societal level. But what I've noticed is that most presidents work to kind of appease the political pressures to maintain whatever the, broadly speaking, the, the racial status quo is. Sure. And when that breaks down, when that breaks down, a, a significant amount of other things also break down. And you have this pattern in which you have, you essentially have these three presidents who exemplify a real shift in, as, as you put it, black and brown political power. You have Abraham Lincoln and the end of slavery. So that's a huge one, institutionally mm -hmm. speaking. And then you have Lyndon Johnson and civil rights and immigration, immigration mm -hmm. reform. And then you have Barack Obama, which I think on a policy level is, is actually pretty modest, but on right. a symbolic level is, is really profound. I think that progression tells us something actually. But each of those were succeeded by a president who, you know, was impeached, or in the case of Nixon, was resigned in the midst of impeachment, on the verge of impeachment. A president who sort of made law and order claims and was kind of fundamentally lawless. Right. And I think it really speaks to that, to that, like, kind of 
liminality of what the state is and what law is. And it, it shows you that when there's a sort of threat that law might really live up to its broader promise of kind of full representation and full citizenship for everyone, a political power might really be distributed, then the kind of foundations of the political system start to falter in a variety of ways. And so that's the, so that's what I'm kind of exploring. And Trump fits into that pretty well. I've been playing with this idea since 2017 and at no point did anyone ever tell me, no, Trump probably won't be impeached. Um, <laughs> we just all assumed that he would. And much, much earlier, right? And that's a whole story. Yeah. How did he last that long? You know? Yeah, Republican well, Congress. Right. We know how. Yeah, absolutely. Which again is part of the pattern. No president has ever been impeached by their own party. Yeah. And in fact, Trump is distinct in that members of his own party in the Senate have voted to voted to convict him. Mitt Romney was the first was the first senator to do that in the 2020 impeachment. And then in 2021, we had seven party defections. Yeah. That was astounding. And actually, I wasn't expecting Richard Burr, and I said a bunch of swear words out loud and on Twitter. That kind of gets to one of the questions that I also put to my students in this class. We had a long unit on impeachment was, what, was this process successful? Mm. And... I don't know that I don't know that any of them agreed with me, which is which is important to note. But I felt like the most recent one was successful in a variety of ways. I mean, Trump was already out of office, mm-hmm. but you know, fifty-seven votes is a pretty damning conviction vote, even mm-hmm. though it it falls short of our constitutional yes. threshold. That threshold is almost you know is is irrelevant in some ways, right? Yeah. It was developed in a wildly different context. Yeah. But there were some ways in which I felt that that process, although it was very partisan and it didn't result in a conviction, had some elements of a kind of truth and reconciliation kind of process. It felt like people were talking about what happened, were talking about their experiences, and that, again, some of of Trump's otherwise political allies talked about his role in the process in a way that was cathartic and that created a public record of of his culpability. But at the same time, it may have been a little bit too fast. And here I think there is a kind of a parallel actually with Nixon leaving office and Ford pardoning him that was sort of like, was this successful? My students thought that one was more successful. Hmm. Um, it was a more successful check of a of presidential power. But at the same time, maybe we moved on too fast. Like there's this imperative to move on because we got stuff to get done. And then we just end up not confronting these these larger issues. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and you know, there, there's also, I'm imagining a good conversation to be had about the role of the presidents in shaping popular opinion amongst his base. Yeah. You know, which in some, in each of those cases, the base doesn't pick up on the broader importance of the reform or the moment of, of social change. They pick up on the, the lasting patterns and practices that maintain the, the racial status quo, the, the, the racial hierarchies of, the, of our nation. And, and so the, uh, the, the presidents do matter, I guess, is the, <laughs> you know, as much as we, you know, politics is local, every, you know, right. presidents do matter. They do shape a tone, they do set a tone, they do uh, play a, a significant role, especially when we think about how they are able to inform attitudes or inflame attitudes for those that are the that support that vision and and yet and yet there's there's mounds of folks and evidence to the contrary too so we don't want to 
leave it just with the, the folks who were the insurrectors, the, if that's a word. Is that a word or insurrection? Um, insurrectionists? Is insurrectionists, yeah. That's not, that looks nothing like the beauty of the summer of 2020 and the, the widely diverse population of folks who were taking to the streets peacefully to demand social change. You know, that is, they are not the, the, the majority, I think is what we, what we learned over the summer of 2020. And while, and while there may be many more folks who agree with the sentiments of the insurrectionists, I think that if, if there's one thing that we've learned from grassroots expressions from, from folks on the ground, is that there are 25 million or more folks who said, no, we need to do something different now in this moment in American history compared to what, what in all fairness was a large number of insurrectionists, but I don't think that they speak for the majority. But then I'm gonna kick it back over to you, good doctor. A lot of people voted for Donald Trump the second time. Yes. <laughs> you know, and so that does tell us something very scary, you know, about that, could, that brand of nationalism and, and how appealing it still remains. I think this really speaks to your question about us not knowing where we are in the in the story, where if we're at the beginning, the middle, or the end. And I, man, I wish I'd had that last week when we still had classes. I would have totally stolen that. Use it. I'm, I'm taking notes <laughs> over here myself. So <laughs> yeah. So here's here's sort of what I think about that. I think. There's lots of evidence that politics is, is more racialized than it was, and notably more racialized than it was when Obama was was running in 2008 or 2012. There's also evidence politics was already, politics has always been racialized, that, that party politics has been racially, what we would call sorted. Democrats and more racially liberal attitudes and Republicans more conservative, that that's been the case since, at least since 1980. So in some ways, 2016 picked up on these trends that were already happening. And the other thing that's, that I think has really been established is that since, like, as politics becomes more racially sorted, the, the more conservative side has more and more trouble building a national majority. Mm -hmm. And that we have, a, we have a stable plurality, if not majority, in this country of people who, who at least in the abstract, prefer a multiracial democracy. Sure. And they, they might, I mean, they might have a lot of different reasons for that, right? Like some people might see that as the sort of cost they have to pay for the policies that they prefer. Other people might see that, you know, might be really ready for something radical. Other people, and I think this describes a lot of people in this sort of broader I would, I'll call it the Biden coalition for lack of a better thing, support those ideals. They're nervous about some of the ways that they might be brought about and they're not sure where they stand on some of it, but they support those ideals. And that's actually really different, I think, from, the, from many moments in the past. I think marshalling that kind of, that kind of coalition has taken a lot of work. And that's, this is sort of where I see the kind of on the ground work of, of politics, not just through the presidency and messaging, but through activists and organizers. And these are people who will be doing work outside the party system, but also within it. Those I think are both important elements of the story, you know, bring people together and sort of explain the connection between ideals and people's daily lives and these bigger policy solutions that may be, you know, hard to see, hard to see all the ins and outs of in any given moment. That's the political work. On yeah. the other hand, what we're seeing though is in a reaction is people on the more racially conservative side not not doing the political work necessarily of, of building a coalition that way, but of 
doing the, the political work of, of changing the rules. Mm-hmm. That's in a lot of energy in that process, right? And yeah, which again kind of goes back to some of your kind of like late late reconstruction or post reconstruction like 1920s kind of politics. Absolutely. And that's but, and this is tough to talk about because it feels partisan, but like this is what I see as a professional and like I'm not going to BS your audience or my students or anybody else. Well, in that Biden coalition, that broader, I guess, Democrat tent, it's it's flimsy. You know what I mean? It's, these yeah. these are not groups that uh, align neatly or effectively, um, even though there might be uh, a, a broad connection in some way. Uh, I really appreciate your your thoughts about that because this, uh, as as we heard along the way. The primary connection that that held that coalition together was anti-Trump, and that's not enough post Trump's removal. You know, that's not going to somehow or another. There's got to be more of a political. There's got to be more political fascia <laughs> keeping this together <laughs> than disliking one person, uh, because then once we get into those political weeds, we do see, and we've seen it over the years, fracturing. In that, in that, especially around policy issues that lead to some sense of social equality and whether or not race comes into play with that. I mean, we're still battling issues around affirmative action. We don't talk about it as much as we, we used to, uh, but you know, public schools is, is still a very racialized topic and, and question around fundamentals to, of equality. And so, yeah, that, that coalition is fragile it's a fragile alliance. Yeah, I think that's right. And in some ways, in, in terms of the policy, the national stuff is the easy stuff. It's mm-hmm. it's relatively easy to get people on board with the sort of universalistic programs that, that the Biden administration is, is posing. And as some people pointed out, those programs, when you take them out of their party context, are, you know, are popular with, with Republicans, too, or at least have some Republican support enough. Um it's the local stuff, I think, where people's lives are really touched by policy. I think that's really the sticking point. And this, again, to sort of go back to the, the split screen thing and the insurrection, I think this is really how I see it as the trick, is that it's easy for a lot of people to say they don't support people bringing the Confederate flag into the Capitol by force. That's, you know, it's, and it's easy when it's somebody else or it's far away. It's harder when it is the sort of day-to-day, you know, schools really seem to be a sticking point for people really thinking about how race touches their life or how their daily activities and, you know, all all of us in some way participate in this system. I think that's a lot harder to deal with. And national politics is not necessarily equipped to deal with that. And we we are in a particularly pronounced environment. I often say that we are one of the hot spots of our nation's culture wars here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yes. And so, so much of this plays out in Madison and our state legislature, and then also at the local level here as, a, as sort of the primary urban space, which gets us into clashes that appear and sound and are racialized, but then are also very politicized between Republicans and Democrats as Milwaukee is a democratic stronghold or it's its own, you know, and so so we 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 confront that very directly here in our own backyard all the time. 
I think this is a good place to start wrapping up because I, I feel that this great conversation is kind of moving into a what is happening now and what is the legacy or the impact of the insurrection. And part of that spins out of the election because we have the incredibly restrictive voter laws that are being passed in Georgia and Florida and other places around the country. And also the fact that there is a huge litmus test where your adherence to Trump's big lie about the election being stolen has become a sticking point in amongst the Republicans in Congress with the attempted excommunication of Liz Cheney from the party. So, and I think that those are conversations that need to happen, but they're a little bit of divorce from what our topic for today was. I would like to extend the opportunity for Dr. Azari to come back on and, and discuss these trends with us if she would like, but I, I definitely want to thank you both for being on today and sharing this wisdom and discussing this important topic. Yeah, thanks, Ben. You know, the, you know, you raise those important um, current and future issues. And uh, if we if we hear history echoes, if we hear the, the historical echoes, we, we continually hear the racializing of ethnic minorities as criminal, uh, as, as going to, to, to mar our electoral process with fraud. I mean, these, these, these arguments have been as much a part of our nation's political landscape as any. Uh, and then also the changing of the rules is it's another one of these echoes. And so we, we, we definitely need to con continue to explore and discuss and consider these, but I'm gonna turn it over to the good doctor for a last word. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate this and, and the conversation. I think it's really helpful to have conversations across expertise and across disciplines um, to, to really get the full picture of American politics. I'm happy to come on and talk elections and party politics anytime. One thing that I think is really important for us as, as educators and as, as scholars of American um, politics and, and history is to is to continue to confront this. And to me, it's really difficult to confront. And there's so much pressure to sort of be neutral and objective. And I think I am objective, but I think the conclusions are not objective because reality is, you know, reality is going in a direction. Reality has an agenda. That's, you know, I, I just think it's really important for us to carve out space at Marquette to have these difficult conversations in this in this political context that that we're in. So I really appreciate you making some space to do that. Thanks, Ben. And thank you for listening to Curto Conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Curto Conversations. You can learn more about this podcast and the work being done with our partners by visiting the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at urbancenter at Music for this episode is by Ronald E. Johnson, whose music can be found at Choco Geek Ensemble.